Hi, this is the Reverend Andrew Christensen. You're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are a Christ-centered, reformationally-minded podcast that explores the history and theology of the Christian church. This podcast originally started as a forum for discussing the developmental history of Christian thought, what is often called historical theology. And it has since grown into an ecumenical team of hosts, myself, Stephen Burnett, Pastor Charlie Lehman, and the Reverend James Rickenbaker. We're all interested in the past, present, and future of the church. We share a commitment to the central place that grace has in the message of the good news, a message we feel often gets lost in our day and age, sometimes in religion itself. A message that is of God's goodwill toward us is echoed in the following words from St. Paul. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief one. I pray that the discussions in our episodes, whether casual or scholarly, can speak to how the story and witness of Christians from our past can comfort and strengthen us for today. God bless. Hi listeners, this is Drew. The following episode you're about to listen to is an interview I had with uh, Dr. Daniel J. Peterson out of University of Aberdeen uh, from an article that he co-wrote with Christopher W. Lilly out of Marquette University. And the article is titled Divine Simplicity, God's Freedom, and the Supposed Problem of Modal Claps out of the Journal of Reformed Theology uh, published in volume 16 from this year of 2022. And uh, so enjoy, and also uh, this was recorded um, about a week uh, prior to it being released because it was recorded back-to-back with our last episode, Theologian Symposium Number 4. So it was released um, a week later due to wanting to give the previous episode some some airtime before, um, before releasing this one. So that is why there may be a reference to something going on in the world of celebrity gossip, and, uh, and that may not make uh, total sense by the time it's being uh, heard. (laughs) So that is definitely not the main topic of our discussion at all, uh, but just as a side note. Uh, So enjoy, uh, God bless, and enjoy the episode. Good morning, everyone. Uh, At least it's morning where I am. It's not morning where our guest Daniel is. Daniel uh, Peterson is joining us uh, again from Aberdeen. Uh, where he's a research fellow, I believe. Is that one of you? Okay. And um, he is joining us again for our listeners. He's been on a previous episode where he discussed Schleiermacher and Schleiermacher might come up in this episode, but we're talking about um, uh, theological concepts, um, a divine simplicity and modal collapse. Um, and so uh, we want to welcome Daniel back on. So how are you doing today? Good. It's uh, good to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, we were just joking that um, I was prior to doing this episode, I was watching the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial and Daniel said, uh, well, we go from lowbrow to highbrow. There's no uh, there's no middle. 
this, there's no middle brow this morning for, for me. Um, so but anyways, I, I forced myself to, to take my eyes off that uh, as addicting as it is. Um, and so we are going to discuss uh, theology this morning. So Daniel, uh, I think you spoke a little bit about it um, last time, but I know there's more to say on it. Um, uh, you're a course with the University of Aberdeen, and um, they have a Center for Protestant Theology out of Aberdeen. And can you tell us a little bit about that um, and what things are offered from it? Yeah, yeah, thanks so much. So um, so the center is, uh, um, I'm lucky enough to be affiliated with it and here, and it's uh, a kind of a public facing side of what we do. And we have a lot of open events and kind of a big tent events. So we've just finished up a series of conversations on the future of Protestant theology. It's been great. We've had some wonderful guests. Um, and that's the kind of thing we do. We also have uh, seminars here throughout the year that are uh, ACPT hosted seminars, you know, like research seminar style. But if folks are interested in these kinds of events, you know, many of them are free. Um, many of them are online. Many of them are recorded. So whether if you're here or not, if you're associated with the University of Aberdeen or not, you're welcome, invited. And you can have access to them even if you can't make it on the day in many cases. So uh, I would just encourage folks to email me if they're if they're interested. In particular, it's a sort of event by event. So we'll try to post things more broadly, but um, mm -hmm. th there's a Facebook page, I believe, and a Twitter and a Twitter uh, account. So those would be ways to follow those events. So, so please go search those out if you're interested. Okay, and I'm also, I'm just, for our listeners, the, the URL I have is Aberdeen Center for Protestant Theology .com. and center in that is C-E-N-T-R-E, so uh, the other way is spelled. The center. British spelling of center. The yeah. British spelling of center, uh, and so uh, that, and um, I, if you type that in on Facebook, uh, and I imagine Twitter, though I don't hang out too much on Twitter land, um, that is a quick way to find them as well. So um, I'm looking at the website now and it looks like they have a registration open for a biblical ABCs um, and then a seminar in the spring for 20, oh, that's 2021, um, then an autumn lecture. So yeah, there's, there's uh, for, you can, I guess from what um, Daniel was saying, they have things, public facing things offered to the public that they can tune in virtually online or um, have access to. So um, that's it's been great, a little you know, bit quiet during COVID. So <laughs> a little bit <laughs> quiet during COVID. And Aberdeen, yeah. of course, is a um, such a I would say a powerhouse for theology in general, Protestant theology. And some of our guests, uh, uh, including Daniel on the show, have, have uh, are either from Aberdeen or did like their doctoral there. So it's a it's definitely a notable school in what our podcast likes to. Uh, do so um yeah thanks for being on and uh we are going to discuss can you tell us about a the, your recent article yeah that you published yeah um, so it's actually it's actually the journal of reform theology uh it's open access so if you're interested um there's no paywall there's no academic sign-in you could just get it get the pdf immediately so if you're interested you can go go hunt it down uh, and it's called um, Divine Simplicity, God's Freedom, and the Supposed Problem of Modal Collapse. And I wrote it with my friend Chris Lilly, um, who was totally instrumental in, in it was a, a wonderful cooperative project. Okay. 
Um, so you co-authored co this one. So, uh, mm -hmm. so in that title alone, let's define what some of these things, um, I guess, generally mean. I know there's um, contentions over, you know, uh, different ways of, of interpreting and implying these concepts, but I guess we'll start with the first one. Um, divine simplicity. Uh, can you give us uh, kind of a uh, intro to theology uh, version of that concept, divine simplicity? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think this is really important to start with because so often people just rush into a de this debate, which we can talk about more in a bit, without wondering sort of what the terms fully mean or might mean, and then um, and also about wondering what they meant historically, which is not always what they mean today, mm -hmm. and also why they were valued. And sort of defining the term and explaining it and explaining why people wanted it kind of all go hand in hand. So, so divine simplicity is the doctrine that God is in no way composed uh, and composed at its most basic could be like putting two Legos together. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that God is in no way composed. Uh, that is, God isn't composed physically, metaphysically, or even logically, in, according to many, to many accounts. So there's no composition in God whatsoever. Uh, God, God is God's acts. God, um, God's essence and existence are one and the same. And these are all swirling around in simplicity. Simplicity was traditionally taken to be a corollary to many of these claims, and most basically a corollary to the aseity or independence of God and the oneness of God. Okay. Um, so, so plurality would be implied by, the, just think of the very basic version of a Lego or, a, you know, putting in a car together. The car uh, would actually be composed of multiple things. God isn't a, an aggregate or a product in any way whatsoever. And that would be one another way of understanding what simplicity is trying to get at. And so a lot of times when we think of God and we then seek to communicate and describe what God is or who God is, things about God, we say things uh, uh, full of power, loving. Um, we use these adjectives, and which are uh, in theology typically seen as attributes. So we we ascribe attributes to God, and I know attributes are kind of connected to this topic too, mm -hmm. right? How do attributes um, connect to it? Yeah. So the so the um, the attributes, the divine attributes, create a puzzle, or are related to the puzzle regarding divine simplicity because they both are a problem on the one hand, but also a, simplicity is a problem for talking about attributes on the one hand or a potential problem, but it's also a benefit. So the problem is if you say that God is simple, then let's just take um, attributes which are, which are in humans often discussed as faculties like intellect and will. So for you or me, our intellect and our will may or may not be exactly the same thing. And they're certainly not the same as us whole and entire because there's parts of me that aren't my intellect or my will. In, a, in at least some senses. But, um, and so therefore, if you say God is simple, then it's not obviously easy to understand how, how God could have an intellect or a will. Uh, that certainly those, those attributes can't be understood as faculties if simplicity is true. Uh, and so one of the um, challenges we'll have to, for, for people who cared for the doctrine of divine simplicity would be to articulate how the divine attributes cohere with that. And there's hundreds of years of people offering a variety of explanations for how that can happen. So that's a kind of a, 
potential burden or puzzle uh, problem on the one hand. Um, but there's a benefit too, which is that, you know, we often don't act ourselves, right? Um, yeah. you, you could think about Paul, you know, the thing, that, uh, the thing that I will, I don't do. And, you know, you, we could talk about, they knew better, but they did otherwise, right? We have all these ways of dividing, dividing people. And of course, people change over the course of their lives. People can lie, people can um, become better or become worse. And so we, as a result, our actions, although they um, in the end reveal the sum total of our character uh, or, or who we are, not all of, um, not all of what we do uh, is as central to who we are. Right. And one thing about, one way of understanding the doctrine of divine simplicity or value behind it is to try to, is to, try to secure the link between who and what God is mm -hmm. and what God does. And if you think about that in terms of Christian theology, you can see how important that would be for Christology and Trinity. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a this is a way of explaining that there's no God behind the God of Jesus Christ. Right. Um, so you can at least see the values that they're. So there's a kind of a as far as from our standpoint of getting to the essence of God, which I think typically is seen as a not a noumenal thing, but something that cannot be fully grasped, obviously. Um, there is a, you say, like there's no God behind Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is an instance or the actions of God in our history are an instance of how we know God. Um, and that's obviously a plurality, right? There's a variety of ways God has acted. Like if you read like the scripture narratives, he parted the Red Sea, he uh, led his people to the promised land. He, um, he intervenes and uh, through Jesus, he intervenes literally in the world and flesh. And these, you know, these, these are all um, examples of how God is known uh, by us. So um, does that sound kind of, is that correct? Is that like, a, I, I recently studied, uh, did a course on Pannenberg and he kind of described those as like, uh, existences, plural, all those instances of God uh, breaking through in our world and that um, what God's essence is, Pannenberg kind of made a distinction between existence and essence. Uh, uh, what undergirds or underlies all those existences is God's essence, right? Um, you know, we get glimpses of God in this world and this life, but not his full essence, I guess. I know it's kind of a digression because I know we're not talking about Pannenberg, but um, so basically, uh, the divine simplicity is does fall in this realm, right, of what humans cannot uh, fully grasp. And that's why you say that we are then dealing in the realm of corollaries, of trying to speak of simplicity the best we possibly can. Is that kind of uh, what you're... Yeah, so, so that very much relates to the, grasp, the theme of grasping, because when you make a judgment about something, you're... you're you're abstracting something, you know, you're cutting, you're, you're cutting things off to say something particular about some whole that you can't take in one bite, as it were, intellectually, conceptually, or verbally. And part of what's going on is to, uh, in the doctrine of divine simplicity is a warning against thinking that we can think that our verbal bites are, you know, if you're thinking about kind of the intellectual task of uh, tackling God as making your way through a sandwich, you can't be taking each bite of the sandwich as a complete, complete sandwich. You have to kind of know that 
what you're saying is inadequate to that essence, but adequate to um, to the effects of that essence and to human purposes in describing that essence. So there's some it's it's advocating a kind of humility. And if you, if for, I'm sure many of your readers will know about the apophatic tradition, and obviously this is this is important to that. But there's also a there's an equally important cataphatic element to this because part of what's being claimed is yes, you can't grasp the whole divine essence that that follows for any number of reasons, but also um, that that what God has um, revealed God's self to do in Jesus of Nazareth is not accidental, because an accident uh, accrues or aggregates to a subject. Or, mm -hmm. um, and if God has no accidents, if God is utterly non-composite, then God couldn't just accidentally, as in the, not as in the sense of, oops, um, I'm sorry, kind of accident, but in the sense of um, non-essentially, incarnate God's self in Jesus of Nazareth. So there's something essential to the divine identity about what's being revealed. So exactly, right. it comes with those complexities, but also those assurances. Okay. And it's a very, um, it's a very hard doctrine that's difficult for a lot of folks to understand for those reasons. Right. So, and that kind of leads us to what our, 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 your article was about the tension between um, the idea that God creates freely um and does things freely there's a tension between that idea of of uh god freely acting and um and the other on the other end so there, there's the tension between the idea of him freely acting and then um also that whatever god does must be necessary is that what what the tension you're tackling with in your article or, exactly. Okay. So if you if you're thinking back to the value here, aseity is supposed to preserve, I'm sorry, simplicity is supposed to preserve divine aseity or independence, which is usually the attribute associated most with God's freedom. And yet at this at the uh, on the other hand, aseity seems to make everything that God does in a sense necessary. Okay. And so the one one in the same attribute that's supposed to preserve God's freedom is also entailing God's uh, entailing uh, the necessity the freedom of what God does is also entailing the necessity of what God does in a okay. certain sense now so that, that's part of the puzzle I remember um you know I this is not like my main as, as our listeners can tell I'm not, this is not one of the uh, subject I have studied a lot in depth I do remember um the figure William William of Ockham though hmm. uh in, in the late medieval period of course uh the English monk uh controversial for his time um you know is usually associated with the nominalist school is is seen as uh, kind of paving the way in some regards to the reformation but i remember him and i think it was his um idea that's called volunteerism a lot mm -hmm. um he had this theological scheme where um there's a distinction between what God has to do and what this, what God decides um, to do. Um, and I always found that as kind of a legitimate way to look at it. Cause I, I mean, it kind of, you know, it respects um, God's sovereignty, I guess, if you'd say it sees God is not like subject to anyone outside of him self and then it also like gives you this feeling that when god does good things um it, it just like emphasizes the gracious part of that because it's it's 
it's it's he didn't have to, but he did anyways, <laughs> you know. So um, this that does that distinction not mean I don't. This may not be related to what we're talking about at all. But that what Occam talked about is that related to what um, this concept? It's definitely related because uh, in in this in this way because the current conversation where the, which this article is is engaging with. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a group that a group of folks that want to preserve certain different accounts of divine simplicity, and then there's a group that that wants to challenge those accounts. And what's really interesting to me is that both groups are concerned about divine freedom and their and therefore divine grace, and they're both after the same values, but they but they think that each other's they both they both agree that God is free and gracious. They just disagree on whether that coheres with their other. With their other claims about how best to explain the nature of god so, the, so you, it's a sorry go ahead no I'm, i cut you off so you're saying there's a there's a there's a school that wants to preserve the notion of simplicity divine simplicity and there's others that want to challenge it but they share they share mostly common or if not all common commitment um correct Is yeah that, so they so everybody agrees that what god does is free and gracious Mm -hmm. But people disagree about whether saying that is compatible with thinking that God is simple. And okay. since people who want to champion divine simplicity tended to think that divine simplicity is exactly what preserves God's freedom and gracious action, there is this inbuilt tension. But it's not about um, uh, uh, it, it's 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 a, it's in pursuit of certain sorts of common goods, which is one of the things that makes the conversation really interesting to me. You know, everybody wants the same things. We all agree on the desirables. We just disagree about how to have those things that are desirable. Mm -hmm. um, you, well, I know you 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 write an article quote having diagnosed this as a problem, um, the contradiction that we um, or the that we pointed out earlier, having diagnosed that. We are told of its solution. We are to resolve the contradiction by abandoning the traditional theological commitments to simplicity, eternity, and immutability, leaving God composite, transitory, sublunary. But sublunary is that a, that's a term? Sublunary. Yeah. But but our belief coherent unquote. So the we are told of that solution. So that's a solution I imagine being pushed by the ones who want to challenge. That's uh, right. So that takes you to the modal collapse arguments. Okay. title so the now idea what is modal what is modal collapse then yeah so first of all modality is about possibility and necessity okay so when you say something is possible impossible or necessary um uh you're dealing in modality um the the debate here is that um the being of god is supposed to be absolutely necessary and yet it's it, um we're back to occam what God does is supposed to consist in the merely possible. And so the question is, if simplicity is true, how do those two hang together? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you want, and the, the different, there's different ways of trying to work this out. And, but one of the lines of contention in current conversations, and maybe, maybe we can do a little history loop back here for a second, but one of the lines of contention in current conversations is that the best or easiest way to solve this is to, is to just drop divine simplicity. Okay. And then we just say, no, this works actually in a very straightforward way, just like you or I. Uh, there's th certain things we could possibly do with our day, and we get to pick which one of those things, which ones of those things we want to do. And that's sort of how it works with God and creation and grace and so on, because God is under no necessity whatsoever. 
um, no problem. And I can tell you're, you're hinting at what the heart of your argument is by, uh, by what you just said now. Uh, but I know you did want to, you mentioned maybe doing a history, history loop and I, you know, we have to spend a, tons of time in the historical part, but I am curious because you do mention um, names like Augustine, Aquinas, and more modern, more early modern examples like Leibniz. How did they handle kind of this problem? I mean, you, there's probably more names you named in the article, but like these are three, I would think, pretty significant ones for uh, for history as far as history is involved. And so like, what? how would those three um, and kind of a, in generally, in, in kind of a nutshell, how did those three tackle this issue? Yeah, so in, so what was what's really interesting is a lot of thinkers throughout Christian history have thought that um, God could create from possibles in some way, or that um, uh, God there that God created from from a selection of creatables. Sometimes sometimes discussed as you know it's sort of a strange turn of phrase, but but kind of helpful in this context. But the little historical bit, which I'll keep very short, is that it's actually only at a couple points in in theological history where people start to get worried about this. So for almost all of theological history, people people thought that God created freely, that that um, God was under no compulsion to create, that there were things that God maybe in some sense could have created but didn't, uh, and that God was simple. And it mostly didn't, I, you don't get the sense that a lot of these big thinkers are losing sleep over it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then uh, they're explaining themselves, so they might be. It might be coming up in some important respects, but they're not. Uh, there isn't a big buzz about it. And the two periods, the two big big chunks where this is important, is late medieval um, scholasticism, so Scotus and Occam, that kind of zone. Mm -hmm. So exactly to your point from earlier, and then in the last hundred or hundred and fifty years or two hundred years. Okay. And so I think that's really interesting. So we have a couple thousand year theological history and for probably two 200 year chunks of that, people get relatively worried about this problem and then get relatively unworried about it. At least big chunks of Christians are just not concerned. And I, I find that really interesting. So what is it that's what is it that's driving this? It could be that we have better philosophical tools now. So a lot of the current conversation takes place in a uh, in a very contemporary philosophical idiom. Um, and maybe it's that those tools bring us a certain sort of accuracy and that's helpful. Mm -hmm. And that, that allows us to see things that people in the tradition before them didn't see. Uh, or it could be that our values and assumptions and premises, implicit premises have changed. And that these little waves of history, which, whichever way they're going, reflect different kind of background assumptions and maybe we need to interrogate those to see what's really going on here. And that's the latter is definitely my instinct. Um, okay. I, I tend to think that the logical innovations, although very helpful and impressive, follow from theological and philosophical assumptions rather than the other way around. And so looking at those kind of unexamined assumptions, I think kind of lifts the lid you know, on, on what's going on. Um, now, somebody, the early thinkers, perhaps Augustine, are not as worried about developing these resources in detail. And in part also, they're not as worried because they're of their contemporaries. So like if Plotinus thinks something really, really similar about simplicity, Augustine's not gonna spend his time defending simplicity, right? He's just gonna sign on the dotted line and move on to the things that distinguish him from 
later from the later Platonic tradition with which he is sometimes dueling. Right. In, in, Aquinas is more interested in this in some in 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 detail, and he is responding to the kind of um, the the long running and important theological tradition of of theological voluntarism, which is the idea that the uh, will has priority over the intellect, uh, and therefore, in a sense, sort of God can do whatever God wills to do. Um, and interestingly, after Aquinas dies, these the the um, the views that Aquinas seems to defend in this debate are condemned. Uh, <laughs> In the condemnation of 1277. Now, those could also those could only be applied to the Latin of Erewhon. That's possible, uh, but um, it's I, I think it's more likely that that they're that they reflect contemporary positions, not just of the of the um, philosophers who are more strictly interested in what Aristotle thinks. I think that their views that are condemning um, Christian theologians who hold these these sorts of views. So, beginning right after Aquinas's death. You get a kind of a slow move into that world of Scotus and Occam, mm -hmm. and it's that what 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 goes along with the theological voluntarism is freedom, but the dark side of that account is caprice or arbitrariness. Right. And one of the main worries of the reformers then uh, is to rein in that arbitrariness. Okay. And they're doing that by appeal to Christology in large part, um, and. Uh, in, in, in other things in other ways, but they don't want that sense of unsurety, right? Because what if, if God could just do whatever God wills, why couldn't God do or will something different tomorrow? Right. And, and can you elaborate a little bit? How did the reformers, you say they try to rein that in by emphasizing, and they kind of use a, the, the angle, I guess, of Christology to do that, but more specifically, how, how what was their argument for reining it in uh, and giving a shirt, uh, you know, assuring people and, and you know, uh, restoring um, uh, a certainty, I guess, in in God's goodness versus his arbitrariness. So what were some things reformers did to do that? So a famous quote here, I don't know if I can dig it up. I have to find the book here. Actually, no, I might have the book. I'll see if I can find you the exact quote here in just a moment. But um, the quote comes from John Calvin's uh, On the Eternal Predestination of God. And um, I think this is representative. So this isn't this isn't a final um, uh, a kind of a final word. And I'm not I'm also not contending that all of the uh, of the um, Reformation sort of was of one mind on all of this. Uh, but I think that it's an important theme that comes up. And let's see if I can uh, find it. Here we go. So um, so uh, concerning the eternal predestination of God, um, 10, 10, 13. So what I said earlier is to be born in mind, Calvin says, God does nothing without the best of reasons, but since the most certain rule of righteousness is his will, it ought, as I may say, to be the principal reason of all our reasonings. For the humility of faith as it is born out of a living reverence for the divine righteousness is no figment of ignorance. In other words, it's not that we don't know why God wills what God wills. God wills for reasons. <laughs> Right. And so therefore, it's not arbitrary. But if those reasons hold, there's a sort of fixedness. Right. For who that does not have the persuasion fixed deeply in his mind that God is righteous and all his works are right can acquiesce simply in his good pleasure. So who can trust in God if you don't think that what God's willing is the good in a certain mm -hmm. sort of way? And then he goes on. Hence, this is in reference, direct reference to late medieval scholasticism. 
not all Roman Catholic doctrines, because he's going to go on to do some do some Roman Catholic bashing here. It's a particular tradition that he's familiar with. So here's what he says. Hence, I detest the doctrine of the Sarbonne, for which the papal theologians applaud themselves, that invent, invents for God an absolute power. For it is easier to dissever the light of the sun from its heat, or for that matter, its heat from fire, than to separate God's power from his righteousness. Mm -hmm. Let these monstrous speculations be put far away from pious minds, that God should be able to do more than is proper to him. So able to do more than is proper to him. So it gets directly to the August uh, formulation uh, or to act without rule or reason. So if God's, oh. in other words, it's a direct, it's a direct attack on late medieval volunteers. Yeah. And it, it seems, it seems here that um, Calvin is trying to, trying to draw closer who God is and what he does. I guess he's trying to really um, close the separation that may have, happened between yeah who god is what he does his essence i guess and then um his actions so i guess that does kind of um from what i'm gathering that seems to me like that loops back that brings us back to that um tension that people um have wrestled with in these few instances of church history then the tension between um god's freedom um and or the, the 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 tension between the idea that he that god is uh that what he does is not um necessary but then also the idea that they these things can be seen as necessary so where does your argument um what are you arguing in this article where did where do you find yourself um as a way that to resolve or reframe this entire discussion that's been happening for centuries right so there's basically two big moves, or th or maybe three big moves, but two two big ones I'll stick with for now. So one is to talk about some technicalities about how to think about what's possible. So the other one common older way of saying this was to say things could be possible in considered in themselves. So if you imagine something right now like a unicorn, right, you can say that's possible uh, because I can imagine it. Seems like it's possible, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I can imagine a unicorn. But um, later thinkers came to argue, at least in some cases, that that doesn't mean it's possible because you can't imagine a unicorn uh, with its full conceptual uh, situatedness in the world. So one reason you can imagine a unicorn, but not um, perhaps in uh, conceive of one, it was how, they would, how you might distinguish it, is because that would involve kind of unthinking a lot of the other details of the world. We'd have to live in a whole universe where there were unicorns and so on. So if you think that things, before taking that turn, if you think that things can just be considered in themselves, then you could consider, uh, you know, Drew who didn't, who, who wore a different color shirt today, no problem, right? And this is how the medievals tended to think about it. Mm -hmm. And they also tended to think about possibles, not as in um, they tended to think about possibility principally, though definitely not only, in terms of what can happen, and they tend to take their cue on what can happen from what does happen. Okay. So, um, so it's possible if it's already happened, kind of, kind of thinking. Uh, not restricting into that, of course, but that's the anchor, right? So, so instead of thinking about possible as sort of merely possible, they're thinking about possible in the sense of, look, that can that kind of thing can happen. Um, 
so that when they say that it's possible for God to do more than God does, they're um, uh, they're they're principally concerned with just things considered in themselves, not with what not with what not with God considered in God's self. So okay. they're just looking to things, not so much to God when they make those distinctions. And because they take it in the case of somebody like Aquinas, those things remain possible. Uh, God can be said to have a certain sort of freedom of choice in the way that we might speak popularly that a lot of people have. And the second big move in the paper is just to say that's, that's just less technical and I think probably more to the heart of the matter is that um, even if you could collapse all these, all these things, so the modal collapse argument, the idea that all possibility reduces to necessity and that's a problem, mm -hmm. it's only a problem if you think that God's freedom has to be understood in certain sorts of ways. Okay. And so those time periods where this became a big debate map on very generally to time periods in which certain views of freedom were fashionable. Hmm. So it's not that simplicity changed, it's that the fashionable views about freedom changed. And then this became an issue. Okay. And so one kind of um, forward-looking remedy I might offer people and also backward-looking to the tradition is what might it mean for God to be free? Is God's freedom uh, the kind of popular uh, version of freedom that we might imagine, and even the ways we might think we read theologians, or are we reading that a bit too in our own, a bit too in our own image? So you're saying like in the concept of freedom's fluid, the concept of it's fluid, it, it depends, it ranges what time period, cultural epoch you're talking about, but I guess generally, I mean, obviously, like we live in you know, the era of free democracies, quote unquote, and it's a different world from Aquinas or <laughs> Augustine in that, you know, uh, obviously, but um, how, but specifically, how has, would you say, because, because I mean, you're, you're making this argument, I mean, freedom, freedom is uh, how it's conceived in past times is, 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 very much directly tied to this or, or perhaps could be tied to this how has freedom been whether on the individual level or collectively i mean how is how has the idea of freedom changed generally though from these different periods um yeah no good question so and there's there's that kind of political freedom there's the individual freedom and then there's divine freedom and these okay. could all be separated so that you can kind of mix and match in various ways. So, mm -hmm. so this just, to, I won't be able to go through all the iterations just sure. so you're listening to you know, those complexities. But, but, but the, main, um, the main thing is in thinking about, the, now lots of people have thought that choice or um, freedom with respect to possibles or possibilities was important to God traditionally, but the way that was understood in detail has shifted. Okay. So that's, one, that's one change that relates to how you conceive of possibilities. Are they possibilities of the agent, or are they possibilities um, and abstracto? Yeah. Right? Something, some sort of mere imagining. And then uh, then the other big sh a big debate about all of this is, is just does freedom require choice at all? And, and related to Calvin's quote from earlier, how freedom relates to the good. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are accounts that say you're free when you act according to the good. There are accounts to say you free, you're free when you um, act with sufficient control. There are accounts that say you're free when um, you act from your nature alone. 
mm-hmm. right? There's a, we can, there's all these sorts of accounts and, um, and you can, you can, you can see elements of them mixed and matched in various theological accounts throughout history. And there's different, different thinkers will, will appeal to different mixtures to explain simplicity or to decline it. Yeah. And, and just kind of just the survey of the different freedoms you, you talk about. I really, when you, when you said our one idea of freedom is uh, when you act from your nature. So you're free from your, your, you're free if you're acting in the way of your, your nature is, is that, that kind of seems to me like that's been, um, an argument in when we're talking about God's freedom is that, uh, you know, we're talking about essence and divine essence. Uh, has that been usually related to, to that argument, the idea of freedom by acting by your nature? Absolutely. Okay. Right. Um, and so, so Occam thinks that to act by your nature, you have to have this sort of free roaming will that can't be responsible to reasons because reasons would then constrain your nature. Mm-hmm. So that's why the will has to be able to roam beyond beyond reasons. Right. Now, Calvin's solution with this the light and the heat and the heat from fire kind of analogy that he had going on there, basically he's saying is God the goodness um, according to which God acts is God's essence. Okay. Right. So to act for the sake of the good and to act according to God's nature are one and the same thing. They're two different ways of saying the same thing. So then that's another way of resolving it. Okay. And that's going to be something like what, uh, what, what, what Schleiermacher will say, right? So going back to the, to the earlier podcast, right? This is going to be, Schleiermacher has no time for unactualized possibilities in either the created world or the divine mind. Okay. Speak more to that. Um, yeah. So, so if you think that God could do more than God does do, then, um, then in, you have to ask uh, why questions, why did God do this instead of that? But also, um, what does it mean to say that things are possible, which will never occur? Mm-hmm. So in what sense is it possible for me to um, be born a day earlier than I actually was, if in fact, I will never be born a day earlier than I actually was? Mm-hmm. Seems rather impossible. Impossible is the definition of something that will never happen. Right. And so the, that's one concern. So say something like it's just sort of verbal absurdity and it's a bit of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, does God know what God will do? So if God knows that God will um, order the hamburger and not the hot dog to be, to use a really silly example, um, then, then in what sense is it, is it really possible that God could have ordered the hot dog? Mm-hmm. God knows from eternity that God will only ever order the hamburger. And so, uh, again, we get to sort of a, why have this whole conversation? We'll just say, God does these sorts of things, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's no need to deal in counterfactuals. Right. Schleiermacher's main worry, and ma- many other people's main worry, is again, um, the problem of the hidden God or the Deus absconditus, the God behind the God of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Because if there's all these things that God could have been besides incarnate for us, then um, what does that say about divine character and how, and how does that reveal uh, the, uh, the character of God most deeply when we do learn that God has become incarnate? Is it just a, a whimsy? Uh, now, 
there's other replies to that, but um, this is this is this is mm-hmm. sort of Schleiermacher's concern in his position. Yeah. No. When I know, um, you know, Luther being an, an example of someone who uh, always held the distinction between God revealed and God hidden, and I know he had his reasoning for, um, you know, re- respecting the the hiddenness of God and uh, <laughs> making peace with it, I suppose, but. Um, uh oh so we, so we spoke of the, the hidden versus that i my mind went jump to the hidden versus revealed thing but i did have a question um right before that i, well, I guess my question is like so for people that um did bi- busy themselves or, th- or concern themselves with uh what you say is like the counterfactuals you know yeah uh, i guess we could think that god could do something but he didn't anyways i mean a lot of that's like in like past tense uh look uh, thinking i mean did a lot of people have these questions because they're looking toward the future and um they're you know they're they're knowing that god is involved with their life every day and with the world every day um and not knowing how things naturally we don't know how things pan out in regard to that, what do you think that conditioned some of the, you know, for some of these theologians, philosophers who concern themselves with that, do you think that was a part of it? That would just kind of be my, you know, what, what I would think would be a, what would lead to that type of speculation. Yeah. So the future looking possibilities for sure. Future looking or even just present. And present I'm possibilities. About yeah. history, especially times of you don't know if you're going to be alive the next day. I mean, like pre-modern times, you know. And yeah, sure. Well, or even or even modern, the, alas, right? What's that? Yeah, even I said, modern, or even yeah. or even today, alas. Yeah. Right? I mean, you you what's going to happen in Russia and Ukraine? What's, I mean, all these things sure. in our world that we wonder about, like um, yeah, what, what what's going to the outcomes? And I just wonder if this was, you know, maybe it's a maybe it's not related at all but i just wonder if no no it's definitely related real, because real world um yeah. issues and how people wrestled with that had to do with trying to find you know where in the mind of how does the mind of god relate to this and what how is what god doing related to this you know i do wonder if that's a so i think it's not like that said i do think it's not like a purely abstract um no. discussion and i think our, our hopefully our listeners get that too this is a little more of a um apophatic episode right than a lot of our episodes no, it's sort of mixture. yeah but it, yeah. it has those it has those elements but it's also yeah. it's kind of kind of goes to both ends you know right. both both highly cataphatic and highly apathetic at the same time right and that's what, one of the reasons it one of the reasons it's a strong flavor you know people either like it people like the doctrine or they don't Right. for these for these sorts of reasons um mm-hmm. so but the, but no you're exactly right that there's a sense of there's a sense of open possibilities of the present and the future unresolved possibilities and tensions and maybe that's something like what it's like for god mm-hmm. right and of course traditionally people thought that that was in some ways the in some in, uh, for some reasons the case uh, in the created order because they thought the full the full powers that bore on the future either hadn't yet existed or whatever Right there, or, or hadn't yet come into play. So, in a sense, yeah, of course, there's a certain sort of um, unresolvedness to the future. Mm-hmm. But, but this is um, this is also where sorry, to, sorry to um, 
hang on the kind of Calvin bandwagon so much today, but this is where this is where well, you're you're reformed, right? So I mean, it's... I I am, although I'm happy to talk. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm happy to talk anybody. Um, I'm not a kind of um, tribalist or partisan. Uh, sure. Just a kind of fun, a fun in a fun way reformed. I hope. Oof. Um, the uh, but the, the, the this is where the, some people just 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 doubled down and 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 started explicating a doctrine of predestination. Right. And if you'll if you think about what that doctrine really means, it's in a sense that there isn't an open future. Right. There's a one only one possible future. Mm-hmm. And if you already think, in fact, if you teach as good news that there's one possible future, then you're not going to be worried about what happens to Ukraine, you know, in, this, sure. in the in the existential sort of metaphysical register. Or, you might be worried or, human, uh, for humanitarian reasons, but or what happens in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial either. You know, <laughs> Fact, I think there's already an outcome to that. We're still behind my wife. And yeah. <laughs> we don't want to spoil it. We're, we're, we're watching the whole thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah, so that's exactly right. Um, and so, yeah. So, and I think, you know, for instance, going back to Luther, you know, he, it's one of the reasons I take it that he was grumpy about predestination, although definitely not the other. I think the other is he took it to undermine the very idea of good news because of the doctrine of reprobation, which is often associated with it. But yeah. Um, you have there's there's room to maneuver on those points yeah so um but but basically the way this was understood by many many thinkers in church history was that god the, the future past future and present uh are equally present to god and that god does not learn of them this is the traditional position right mm-hmm. so god doesn't learn what happens in the present past or future uh in fact god doesn't even god's knowledge of them is not discursive so it's not of it's not that there are things and then that information comes into God. It's practical. So God knows them. God knows what occurs by causing what occurs uh, in very sophisticated sorts of ways, whether directly or indirectly. There's all sorts of nuance that could be added, but uh, but long and short is that um, the kind of intimacy of and fixedness of of um, the past, present, and future to God is a, is highly disanalogous with the way that we could live in a certain sort of anxiety, not knowing how these things will work out. Sure. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely part of it. And when you think that that openness is a virtue uh, or would be helpful or would help resolve other tensions, for instance, it's very important for people dealing with the problem of evil to appeal to openness of, of certain, of certain sorts or others. Right. Right. Um, And you see a couple big, you see a couple of big points in history where people are dealing with these questions where openness and or or freedom or possibility all these things kind of come into their own uh and one of them again of course is you know you've got you've got various points in history prior to the to recent times but one of them is uh in the middle of the 20th century for not coincidental reasons major disruptive and um, traumatic world events right and then that then lo and behold you get Charles Hartshorn's omnipotence and other mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you get you get a direct challenge to traditional accounts of God and divine attributes. So I think, yeah, it's always existential. And I think whichever you don't have to I, I, you anyone who's as welcome to read the article and see what they think. But I suppose what I would say is um, whether you whether it's to your taste or not, I would encourage anybody to, to think about what values are driving those judgments of desirability. So you're drawing out 
Drew to say, hey, aren't we worried about this? Or aren't we reassured by this? Or, you know, there are all those kind of factors right. I think are the most important factors, not the, um, not the technical details. Sure. Well, good. Um, before, before we close off, I, I wanted to ask you if there's any, um, any works on, you know, that you're, anything you're currently working on, anything underway um, in the future of your yeah, well, I'm, I'm hopefully working on some some stuff, uh, some stuff on on the doctrine of sin and some issues with natural science. Uh, pretty uh, pretty soon here, we'll see. That that's kind of my next major project. But in the meanwhile, I've got some stuff kind of related to similar similar questions for people who are interested on the modern on comparing Schleiermacher. Uh, sorry to kind of harp on about Schleiermacher with um, Thomas Aquinas as a representative of a traditional account and with Kant on the question of the eternity of the world. And I gave a paper on this at Edinburgh, but I'll keep, I'm gonna keep working on it. And this is all part of the same story. There's this late 18th, early 19th century um, um, shift where people start rethinking the doctrine of God. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in the assumptions that go into that. And in this case, in simplicity, we're dealing with freedom. And in that paper, we're dealing with time. Okay. And so I'm really interested in general, like what's going on between these. I like a lot of what moderns do in some cases, but I'm also kind of curious and disappointed and bewildered in other cases. And Kant is definitely a, a person in whom I'm flummoxed by on these questions. I think that traditional people just do better mm -hmm. uh, on these on these sorts of questions. So that's those are my current uh, yeah projects. <laughs> that sounds exciting. See, it's, it sounds like almost like a, a pitting, well, not a pitting against, but. Uh weighing Kant and then a weighing Aquinas. I guess he's the traditional mind in that instance and maybe coming down on the side of Aquinas a little more. I don't know. I won't speak. Yeah, and showing how <laughs> showing how somebody like Schleiermacher, who is supposed to be the ultra-modern theologian, as, as the stereotype has it, is far closer to Aquinas than he is to Kant. Okay. Well, I know um, you're of that school that, that sees, that likes to see Schleiermacher as more tied to the to tradition or more of an interlocutor with that than he is in the modern um of the, the you know that rather than being the founder of of something that's a break from that and being something totally modern so i i definitely uh like that uh approach um don't know if i'm 100 percent with it but i i know you and dr nemo uh both uh work in that that area and that reminded me i i, I the you and he, him are obviously involved with Center for Protestant Theology. I saw it, Philip Ziegler. I just saw his name on the website. Yeah, I'm re yeah. reading his book, Militant Grace. Oh, excellent. And, Fantastic. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, so so Phil Ziegler, uh, Paul Nimmo, and Tom Greggs are really the folks who run the show. And, um, and they're fantastic. Their works are all well worth checking out. Mm -hmm. You can find them all on the Aberdeen Divinity page. And, and, and yes, um, They'll, they'll almost certainly all of them disagree with me on what I've just said about simplicity, by the way. So if you're looking for, okay. for, for, <laughs> the, for, looking for the, the, the I'll all three of them on. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bring all three of them on. They'll just cream you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no. Exactly. Exactly. But I will definitely want to have you on again. I mean, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, second episode. And I mean, we'd love to bring you back on later this year uh, for, uh, you know, we'll figure out something else we can talk about. So, yeah. Sounds good, Drew. All right. 
Well, thanks, Daniel. Uh, for everyone, that was Dr. Daniel Peterson uh, talking about his most recent article in Journal of Reformed Theology to correct the earlier uh, mistitle I gave it. So uh, God bless. And um, we, for our next, well, our next episode will uh, happen when it happens. I don't have the schedule in front of me, but, um, but God bless and take care.